The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Everybody, hi there. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned into The Glenn Show. I'm with John McWhorter, my conversation partner. I teach at Brown and I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. John teaches at Columbia and he writes for the New York Times. We talk every other week. Glenn and John. Hello there, John. Welcome back. Hey, Glenn. How are you? I'm doing famously well, John. Famously well. I have an announcement to make, everybody. (laughs) May 14, 2024, Norton, W.W. Norton and Company, the venerable publication house, will publish my memoir, Late Admissions, Confessions of a Black Conservative. May 14, 2024. You think so? Yeah, I really do. It's clever. Who who did that? It was a team effort. Uh, My my team, Nikita Petrov and Mark Sussman here at the Glenn Show, uh, and I brainstormed about it. People at, including uh, John Glussman, who is a senior editor at Norton, who is handling my book. And I went back and forth about the title. Because I had wanted to call it uh, The Enemy Within. Yeah, yeah. Confessions of a Black Conservative. You haven't commented on that second part, but... (laughs) 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 But but, uh, John said, no, man, that doesn't work. It's way too generic. And if you go and Google The Enemy Within, you get a lot of books about counterterrorism efforts and stuff like that. that, So I ended up... uh, going through long list after long list of potential title and whatnot, presented uh, John Glussman with a dozen or so possibilities. And uh, they they cobbled together parts of two different, you know, uh, late admissions. And then there was uh, another subtitle. And then uh, there was something with the subtitle, a confession, confessions of a black conservative. And so we took the two and created this title. Can I ask you something, Glenn? Yes, you you certainly can. I was hoping that you would. Why did you write the memoir? Why do you wish to share your view of your life story beyond your friends and family? And of course, many people do, but it mystifies me because I'm strange. I will right? No such book, I'm pretty sure. What's the purpose? That's a genuine question. Well, it's not a question that can be adequately answered off the cuff. Um, I will react to your question. I'm not sure I will answer it. Uh, I mean, first thing I want to say is this has been brewing for a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. For me, I mean, almost as long as you and I have been talking and we've been talking since 2008. 
so that's 15 years. Uh, but as a concrete project, it went in and out of my, you know, kind of not as entirely well-organized uh, work plan. You know, what am I doing with my time? What are my professional objectives? You know, I'm, I've got graduate students. I've got research projects. I've got my public intellectual life. And whatnot, and and uh, this this kind of loomed as a project in my mind, even in the early teens, even in the aughts. Maybe you could do this now. Wh why did it loom as a project? I think I have something to say, and I and I think I have <laughs> something to explain. So so I'm a public figure in virtue of you know being uh, a being prominent, being uh, heterodox, uh, being outspoken. Um, and, and I have a track record. I mean, you know, whether I'm talking about it or not, people are talking about it. People are aware of it. I was a Reagan conservative. What was that about? I was a drug addict, uh, hospitalized in a mental institution. What was that about? Um, I was accused of assault with a deadly weapon weapon by a woman with whom I was having an extramarital affair, and it became front page news throughout the country because I was nominated for the undersecretary in the Department of Education position, the number two position in the second Reagan administration. And it was while that nomination was pending that this uh, fiasco, this disaster in my life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I could go on obviously in this vein for a long time. You asked me a pointed question. Why did I write the book? I'm saying I had something to explain and I had something to say. I think part of it then is that you have genuinely led a more interesting life than I have. You have, you have, you have things that people would want to read. Uh, I get that. Well, okay, you're using yourself as a point of comparison and I guess you don't have any alternative to doing that. You would never write such a book. You say, here I have so written. Um, Okay, I'm not going to argue with you. My, if you think my life was more interesting than yours, okay, so be it. Which was. But, but that gives me grist. It, it doesn't necessarily explain why I want to share it with others. Um, and it doesn't explain what it means to me. And I've kind of gestured at why I want to explain it to others because I think I need somehow to contextualize my, my biographic profile from my point of view to humanize it and to invite a more sympathetic uh, view of those who will be taking my measure. Hmm. Maybe that's hopelessly uh, narcissistic of me to, to be thinking in those terms. And I'm, I'm saying I'm not hinting at that, no. Oh, okay. But no, it's, it's genuinely just what's in you that made you want to write about those things. Yeah. Because it really is not, it would not be a natural impulse on, on my part. And it's, I, it fascinates me. It's just, it's a different way of being and thinking. And so I'm just trying to probe into it. Thinking about honesty of the problem of self-regard, what I call the problem of self-regard in the book, the idea that you, you take the, a measure of your own life and have you been honest with yourself about what's happening to you? And uh, can you even in retrospect, uh, be honest with yourself about it. Uh, so anyway, I don't want to go into too much of a meta kind of philosophical reflection on self-narrating, which is what I'm doing. 
I'm sure there are library shelves full of books where people try to understand autobiography from that or from that angle of vision. Uh, I have five children and six grandchildren. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I had a three decades long marriage to uh, my late wife, Linda Lowry, my soulmate and partner, the mother of my children, Glenn and Nehemiah, uh, who passed away from breast cancer in 2011. There, there's her, there's her memory. Okay. Uh, right. Anyway, I mean, I, you know, I want people to know before we go on, you can pre-order the book. It is permissible to pre-order the book. You can go to your bookseller, your online provider. There will be some links in this post. I'm not going to single out any particular provider because that would be wrong. But you can pre-order the book. Now, why should you pre-order the book? First of all, you do want to read this book. Thanks for allowing me to do this commercial, John, but I'll just be brief. You do want to read this book, okay? You've been following The Glenn Show. You want to read this book. Secondly, I'm told by people who know better than I do that pre-orders get counted in the first week of sales. And that's a big boon toward, well, you know, being on bestseller lists and things of this kind, which would be good for the book and good for your humble servant. So pre-order the book. Folks, I should say that despite any air of, of skepticism that my question may have attracted, I, of course, have read the book, and it is a potato chip book. You will not be able to put it down. And here I, I seem like I'm minimizing it again, and that is not my intention. But Glenn has written truly a gripping memoir. And I say that as someone for whom, frankly, memoir is my least favorite genre. Sorry, Glenn, but it's just I, I don't understand. But this I really <laughs> could not put down, and not just because it was Glenn, but because it's Glenn. If you are somebody who watches this show, you might get through it in one reading, and it's not short. So I highly recommend it. There's a genuine ad. Uh, believe me, we're going to make good use of it, John. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, <laughs> enough said Enough said about the book. I think that that is a suitable uh, final word. Let's move on. Martin Luther King Jr. Day approaches as we talk here uh, uh, in a couple of days, John. Uh, and I have to ask myself what this day is supposed to mean in American public life. And I know I've asked this question before. People go back in the archives and years past Martin Luther King Day, but I am really starting to wonder uh, about that. And uh, it's not going anywhere. Honoring Dr. King, honoring the memory of Dr. King. It's not, it's not going anywhere as a practice. I mean, there was this whole big political brouhaha where some states were, you know, laggardly with respect to affirming the federal designation of the holiday and all of that. Will we or will we not honor Dr. King? But history is, is a wickedly unforgiving and uh, uh, maybe a little bit fickle and unpredictable or something. I mean, uh, who is Martin Luther King Jr. in the American memory today? And what should we be making of a national holiday, a national holiday set aside to honor his memory? What are we honoring? Well, you know, I'm a little unimaginative about that. 
there are times when conservative makes sense. And King talked about the content of our character. We all know the quote. I will not budge from that. And I don't think that anything that indicates that he was a hard leftist by our standards, which he was, belies that statement, which I think many people are coming to find inconvenient because the new idea is that we're supposed to focus on our blackness, particularly our pain, but often just our blackness as our distinguishing trait and that all judgment of us, all perspectives on us must be filtered through that. That's not what Dr. King meant. And everybody understood that when he said it, or that understanding was just beginning to fall away, actually. I say no, I stand athwart. He meant that. A hard leftist can mean that. And this new focus on race essentialism as enlightenment, I think is a detour. I think it must be worked against, and I will not stop doing so. You can go even further and have, say, the end of race, as Coleman and Camille urge. I have a hard time going that far because I'm just living within this time frame. But ultimately, yeah, that's where we need to go. So for me, King Day is getting sad because what he thought, how comfortable he would be sitting at certain dinner tables these days, it seems to recede evermore. And so that's what I think. To me, King Day is supposed to be about reminding us that we're supposed to get past this, not wallow in it because we want to settle scores. That's what I think. So I wonder what you would say to the critique of what you just said that I can imagine someone like Cornel West might utter. I'm not putting these words in his mouth. These are my words. A hypothetical responded to you. You have reduced King uh, to uh, colorblindness. Now, in doing so, you've drained the power of his moral historic moral witness and kind of reified it. I mean, so, so what do I mean? What do I mean? You've got King 1963 at the Washington mall. That was struggle. That was in the context of a struggle. Uh, And it uh, was relevant to other struggles. So, it was relevant to a struggle for a just society, poor people's campaign and all that. So it was relevant to a struggle for a just world. Uh, King's uh, criticism of the Vietnam War, which ultimately came in 1967 in an address he gave at the Riverside Church and all of that. Uh, and uh, it, it was a, uh, you know, good trouble. It was what uh, John Lewis used to call good trouble. It was subversive. And you've neutered it. You, you've taken all of the disquiet that would be sown amongst the powerful and the comfortable out of it. Don't do that to Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> how, how'd you respond to that? that? That was good. But no, no, Cornell. I don't know whether he would have said that. Yeah, he would, he would have, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Probably um, more eloquently than I did, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, what you're essentially saying is that King is only interesting if he's a badass. And so if he says that when he said it, it was a badass statement. 
And now I'm, I'm neutering it by reducing him to that one thing and not listening to the other things he said, i.e., I take it that you're saying that the sorts of things he was saying in roughly 66, 67, and 68 were badass by our standards, and so we have to pay as much attention to them. No, I, I disagree. Content of our character was badass then, and frankly, it's as badass now as the things that he said about Vietnam, etc., at Riverside Church. Because today, to say, no, I'm going to go here. To say, no, Claudine Gay, you're not supposed to think of your color when all of these things happen. You're supposed to think of yourself as the president of Harvard and understand that if it's been discovered that you plagiarized, even if it wasn't super egregious plagiarizing, it's your job as the president of Harvard to fall on your sword and graciously resign. doesn't mean you're an evil person, but this is what people do. It doesn't make it different that you're black. Your blackness does not give you a pass. For Martin Luther King to say, judge us on the content of our character in the face of the kind of orthodoxy today that has so many people defending her attitude towards having been made to resign, that's pretty badass, as any really resonant historical statement tends to be. So I disagree. I think, and now I'm not talking to Cornell West, I think people are uncomfortable taking our eyes away from the aspects of King that fit into what is now thought of as the sexy view. But the content point is as badass now as it was then. It's hard for human beings to see each other just on the basis of the content of our character. If that wasn't a badass statement forever, then I don't really know what would be. I was trying to figure out what I disagree with or what you said, and I was affirming that the colorblind point, the the speech uh, that he gives in 1963 and the context of that speech, which is, you know, it's the context of the political move toward the Civil Rights Acts and the desegregation uh, campaigns in, in the South. And a lot is yet to come. You know, people, their bodies are going to be dug out of earthen dams yet, and churches are going to be exploded and things of this kind. So, so I, I grant that that's a badass point. Uh, but I think you underestimate or don't fully appreciate the subversive point, the point that change comes through unsettling established pattern, and that that requires a kind of leadership that King embodied and a kind of moral commitment that he had. So, I mean, he was a socialist pretty much. I mean, you know, in terms of his economic and uh, sort of policy uh, orientation, he was a pacifist, pretty much. The Vietnam War thing was part of that. But what would he, you know, if he were alive today and this war going on in Gaza, I'm not asking you to address the war, John. I'm just saying it's not hard to imagine that he would be, you know, oh, calling for ceasefire and agreeing with the, the critics of Israel right. and things of this yeah. kind, you know. Uh, so it is, you know, King to Mandela. You know, there, there's a kind of linkage in maybe it's not just the fevered imaginations of ultra woke leftist academics. Maybe there really is some resonance to the uh, struggles for justice as they manifest themselves uh, throughout the world. I mean, King is iconic, not just in the United States of America, which is one way of answering the question, what is Martin Luther King Day? supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about America's gift through the emancipatory struggle of Black people, of which King is emblematic, to the world, to Tiananmen Square, 
to uh, occupied Soviet-occupied Eastern Europe at an, an earlier time. So d don't diminish King. I'm still, I'm still with that you know, mantra. Don't diminish King. He was fighting for people to be judged on the basis of the content of our character. And the content of their character, and that fits right in with his pacifism, which would have evolved into possibly a militant kind of pacifism. But we don't reject the content point because there's less drama in it, because it really does settle into a problem that humans have had since the dawn of time. That content is arguing for a kind of moral progressivism. And um, I can't, I can't get past it. It's not that I don't understand how he was feeling later in his life. It's not that I think that he was a politically centrist pastor. That's a, that's not who he was. No, not at all. Not saying that. But still, content of our character. That was a crucial point, and he had said it like ten minutes before 1968. It wasn't that long before people are going to write in and say, "Excuse me, it was, I know when it was, but." That was a very short time. He was the same person. And so, yeah, Selma, all of it. Chicago, Cicero, Illinois, all of that yeah, is consonant yeah. with somebody saying, judge by the content of character. And to me, that is my favorite position of his, not the one that brings him a little closer to Malcolm X, which is what I think a lot of people want. Yeah, you Sexy mentioned Chicago, Chicago 67. That, what, a, what a fiasco Memphis. that was in a certain way. Well, Memphis Harvard. and the sanitation workers. Yeah. yeah, all of that is as important in his life as what he said in D.C. that day. But still, that was a very important thing that he said. You mentioned uh, former president of Harvard, Claudine Gay. Um, what do you make of some of the reaction? You wrote about this, didn't you? you didn't you have a piece in the Times where you said, don't blame it on racism or something like mm -hmm. that? And of course, you can say what you said. But there have been other reactions. Did you know that Al Sharpton was out there uh, picketing the offices of Bill Ackman, uh, a wealthy uh, financier who's a Harvard alum and had been quite active in criticizing President Gay and calling for a resignation on the plagiarism issue? Uh, he was picketing his offices, man. <laughs> Anyway, any comment? Yeah. This one comes down to DEI and also some, some language issues because people are wondering, why pick on that one of the three presidents? Why do you have to hound her, find out about this petty plagiarism and hound her out of the office? Why are you going after her? And a lot of people are thinking, well, it's because she's black, which is a great, great movie. But no, it isn't that. It's that Ackman and Rufo and Brunet and the others Brunette, I don't know how he pronounces his name, but what they were against was diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And there's certain people, I'm not going to name one of them, but there's certain people where they try to pull this. Are you against diversity? Are you against equity? Are you against inclusion? Because if you are, you're a racist, and therefore, Claudine Gay was damaged by racist. No, 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 no. Words, meanings evolve, and diversity, equity, and inclusion do not exist in their dictionary meanings when it comes to what has passed for DEI in many places. And Glenn, you have illustrated this brilliantly in having Tavia Lee on this show. 
And if anybody wants to say there's something unique about De Anza, well, you better prove it. You, you better put up and or shut up. It wasn't unique to De Anza. That was a general phenomenon at the uh, DEI these days. And if you're against DEI, it doesn't mean you're a racist. Frankly, it could mean that you are working for your race to be against all of this shit, frankly. If you don't like what A.B. Ali was describing, and she is a black woman and a black identified woman. If you don't like what she was decrying. Remind us, just remind us what she briefly. A.B. Ali was at De Anza Community College, and she was brought on as the head of their DEI office. And she only lasted for a short time. She was ejected because she believed in actual diversity, equity, and inclusion and found that she was expected to preside over this business of setting black and white people, especially against each other, working on the basis of a conception of intersectionality, where white people are on top and everybody else are defined by their battle against this hegemony from whites. There was anti-Semitism that was threaded throughout all of this, and a sense that qualifications shouldn't matter when it comes to whether black and brown people get places and things. And because she wouldn't agree with it, she was ejected, and she's a black woman. That's DEI. If you're against that, whatever you have to say about the motives of Christopher Rufo, I don't know him. But if he's on this Ahab-like quest to battle DEI, it doesn't make him a racist. It's simplistic to think so. But that's what happened when Claudine Gay had to step down. And unfortunately, she seems to think that her color was not just one thing, but central in why she lost her job. And I think it's a, it's an empirically flawed analysis. And a certain kind of person says, well, race must have had something to do with it. But I want to ask you why. I know you're supposed to say that, or you kind of feel like that's the way it is. But why? Explain exactly why it had something to do with it. DEI is not a good thing in all ways. It's actually, frankly, I think the way it's been, especially since 2020, it's a scourge. And I'm saying that pro-blackly. <laughs> uh, an ironic thought occurred to me just as you were speaking, which is that if Claudine Gay were really, on your argument, on your argument, interested in promoting the well-being of African-Americans broadly understood, she should have written uh, a piece for the New York Times in which she made no reference whatsoever to her own race. She should have followed King's dictum, the content of my character, and should have basically said, uh, I apologize. I messed up and uh, the consequences have brought themselves home to me. And I, I accept that as uh, appropriate to the circumstance. And uh, let's move on. Oh, this is This is something that I hesitated to write because there's a part of me that doesn't want to dogpile too much on her for various reasons. But it's not that the plagiarism she did was so morally egregious. It wasn't about stealing ideas. It was about stealing text blocks of boilerplate and throat clearings. There is a difference. In another language, there might be two words. One of them refers to what she did, and then one of them refers to putting forth other people's ideas as your own. We all know that she's thinking, well, it's so petty. I didn't do anything really wrong. And she, there's a point there. But the form of it, the fact that Harvard is also so strict about plagiarism and plagiarism as the English language happens to have it, means that in a situation like that, she's supposed to fall on her sword. There's an honor, there's a graciousness involved where she's supposed to say, 
at home over dinner, what I did wasn't really that bad. But she's supposed to get up in front of the public and say, the form of this is such that I must offer my resignation. I'm sorry for any inconvenience that I cause. That's what one does. I think Claudine Gay and her friends think that because she's black, you get a pass on that. You don't have to fall on your sword. You don't have to be gracious. You don't have to follow the form because your blackness is so important to the office that you should be allowed to stay where you are. I disagree. Dr. King would as well. Yeah, see, I have a different read on it, but I, I hear you and I like, I actually like uh, the thought of uh, it's a kind of duty. It, it's, it's honorable duty. within the context of the office and, and the exactly. role and, and it's accepting certain exigencies. However, unfair this may be. You don't mention unfairness in your, in your resignation letter. You, you accept your fate. You're, you do fall on your sword like the general after the battle has been lost, kind of thing like that. And, and in doing so, you honor the, the traditions that you are the temporary custodian of, something like that. But here's where I want to disagree, because I think it relates to DEI in a much more fundamental way. And I said this last time we talked about this. This is corruption, man. This this is, uh, well, why do I think the plagiarism is important? I accept that your your characterization, not really stealing and presenting as your own someone else's ideas, more of a use of boilerplate language that you just borrowed uh, in whole from another source, and you oughtn't to have done that or ought to have acknowledged it, but nevertheless. Uh, I accept that, that that distinction, but I'm talking about the quality of mind of the person who conducts their professional life in this way, because there wasn't just one instance, there were dozens upon dozens of instances, so this was a modus operandi. This, this, this was a way of doing business. Operandus, I think, is the proper Latin. Operandus. Uh, ah, okay, so you actually know. <laughs> I was faking it. <laughs> but, 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 but I'm saying, who is this person? And uh, who is this person intellectually? This is what I'm saying. And, and so a kind of tinny sound is coming out of this. A kind of thinness is emanating from this. And uh, th that they are put in the position of presiding over this institution and this heritage, and yet are, when you scratch, there's an emperor has no clothes, or there's almost a kind of Wizard of Oz kind of feel to it. I mean, Tin Man, you know, I, I, I don't mean any disrespect. I'm trying to give voice to an idea. There was not the timber. There was not the resonance. There was not the depth. There was not the gravitas. There was not the solidity. There was not the profundity. There was a functionary whose race had an awful lot to do with the fact that she ascended to the position to which she had ascended. So this is corruption. This is losing your way, not as an individual person, but as an institution and as a, as a, as a program, as a program of action. The DEI movement are hoist on their own petard here, I repeat. They, they, they and, and I hope they lose. I, I hope merit, please don't make me apologize for using that fucking word. Merit. You know, when you're in the presence of greatness, you know it. 
That's what Harvard should aspire to. That's what Harvard should embody. That's what Harvard should honor. That's what that's the message that Harvard should send out to the world. She was exactly the opposite of that. It's so depressing, though, that the people who are going to hear you, the ones who are gracious enough to even listen from, quote unquote, the other side, and all they can feel, all they hear, all they can think is, no, what was important was not her merit based on those, quote unquote, white standards, but that she was in her position and she was going to fight for diversity, equity and inclusion in terms of representation on the faculty and the administration, and in terms of what is recognized, what is studied, what is thought about, what is redressed in terms of particularly Black history. That's also DEI. And the idea is that her having been there to represent and lead in that was more important than any questions of relative merit. They think it's good that she was brought in as a Black face to represent blackness. These people depress me. They don't scare me. They depress me. I must admit that I don't, I stay in more. And even now that the pandemic is over, I'm feathering my nest in, in many ways, in terms of furniture, in terms of, you know, whether or not I'm going to get rid of my 1000 CDs. I like just the fact that they're sitting there. I insist on continuing to use them. I have three Blu-ray machines throughout my house because I like to sit, look at things. Because I don't like these people. And yet they're not, <laughs> going, they're not going away. What's the connection between the CDs and the Blu-ray and, the, and these DEI people? <laughs> Again, can you remind me? <laughs> that I'm pursuing my hobbies uh, by myself in my house instead of going to stuff. Because uh, you keep running into this. This shit is taking over our whole world. And to an extent, I just want to curl up with my books and my music and my movies and just be where I don't have to face this. And it's not that it's hostility against me. It's that I find it to be a very fake, narrow, limited, angry, ashy little world. It's an ashy little world. And I'm getting tired of having to pretend. It's sad, isn't it? And I'm not putting on, folks. That's not a performance. I actually probably shouldn't reveal that I stay home more than I used to. But yeah, it's awful. No, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, there's philosophic grist there about how to live, you know. And uh, the things that you're doing and enjoying in, in the comfort of your home, your aesthetic and, you know, uh, entertainment and, and other such. Uh, you, you also have other, aren't you a dinosaur guy? Hugely. And I've been pursuing <laughs> that more. I have a big dinosaur book right now beside my bed. I'm reviewing the genera and you know, wishing there was a newer dinosaur book. And I follow a, a podcast. And in other words, things that give me nostalgia, things that make me happy. I, I, I want to curl up with a, with a brachiosaurus. Because once you go out there, even just in casual conversations, you have to listen to this shit and decide whether you're going to respond it's everywhere. One gets exhausted. I remember talking to one person last summer. She's very, very sweet. I like her. She's very smart. She's a moral leader in some ways. But 
She was talking about how she had heard that a, a cop, an ex-cop, was moving in next door. She keeps on saying, I didn't want to live next door to a cop. I didn't oh, want to live geez. next door to a cop. And she's waiting. I didn't want to live next door to a cop. Waiting she's for you waiting to, for me to say, yeah, 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 yeah. I know. But I don't really think that way. And I know this person. Um, but, and you know, that's just one thing. But <laughs> talk about microaggressions. You have to deal with something like that every couple days. I'm weary. I just want to stay home and read. Also, I have a phonograph. Play my records. Because they don't say that to me. My records don't say I don't want to live next door to a cop. So, yeah. Tell people, if I may, about your upcoming cabaret show performance that you are going to be preparing for over the weeks and, and, and months ahead. I, I think, you know, you, if you're willing, uh, should share that with the audience. Well, that's not, that's not public. That's, um, I belong to the Century Association and I'm going to be doing it there. But one thing I've been doing in, instead of going out, especially over the past year, is I have been, and folks, it's not, I'm not agoraphobic. I've been plenty of places, but I just mean <laughs> that I do feather my nest more than I used to. I do not party the way I used to. And um, I've been sitting at the piano and singing, you know, the American songbook songs. I, I like to pick the ones that, for the most part, people don't know. And it's just been something I've been doing with this vague notion that maybe it's time for me to do this because it's kind of fun. And it takes practice to accompany yourself in any real way and sing at the same time. And I don't sing the way people expect a black man to sing. There's no street, and I didn't grow up in the church. If anything, I sound kind of like Bobby Short with a deeper voice. When I was younger, I think that threw people so much that I decided to just not sing, except in private or you know, in, in groups, because there are expectations as to how a black man is supposed to sound when he sings. And I noticed that I even put some people off occasionally. But now that I'm getting a little older, I think to not sound like the street or the church is a little less weird to more people. And this is white and black people because I'm being processed as aging. And so therefore, maybe I'm just from another time or something. I'm not sure what other <laughs> time that's supposed to be, but if the <laughs> 80s and 90s are another time. And so I've just been slowly doing it. I've been also doing it with my daughter who just turned 12. Dolly's got a four octave range and she is a good, I can't even say little singer because she's 5'4". But I've worked up a couple of songs with her She's good at memorizing lyrics and stuff. So I've decided that in June, I'm going to do a whole one-man show of obscure musical theater stuff. Not the blues, not gospel, not R&B, but things written mostly by white men 100 years ago. But a lot of that stuff is really good. And I did at the Century Club recently one song I did, Fascinating Rhythm. And people seem to like it. So I'm going to do more stuff that people seem to like, especially since there's so much that I have to say that so many people don't like. There is a joy in giving people something <laughs> that's just about happiness. So in the room I'm sitting, there are actually two pianos. And I have been practicing a lot. And, um, you know, the nice thing is that if you accompany yourself, you can sing in your own damn key. Because the old sheet music was all written for sopranos and tenors. And I'm a bass baritone, so it's hard to sing them. But if you come to yourself, you can put it right where you sit. And so it makes singing more fun. So right now I'm looking at one of the pianos I've been practicing to make it clear what kind of music I'm talking about. 
All's Fair in Love and War. It's 1937. It's Gold Diggers of 1937, an utterly stupid movie, but with some cute numbers with Busby <laughs> Berkeley, you know, having ha- having the camera overhead and the chorus is running around. The score of it is good. And I have had the sheet music to it since I was a teenager. And it is a very catchy, propulsive song. And I thought, no one's going to do this today unless you sit through that movie and ever fewer people are going to do that. So I've got All's Fair in Love and War, and I've been arranging it. I'm, I'm playing it in my key, and you don't just do it from the beginning to the end. You have to arrange it. You have to make it entertaining for somebody 100 years later. I was working on it last night, and I look forward to doing it as the sun goes down today. Great little song. I urge you to look it up, but imagine hearing it sung today. So All's Fair in Love and War. Wonderful song by Harry Warren and Al Dubin. Glenn, we have gone far beyond what most of our viewers care about. Well, I have a dream. I, I have a dream, John. We've been talking about Martin Luther King Jr. I have a dream. Uh, as you know, I have a nice piano in my living room. And uh, in my dream, you uh, make the trek up here uh, for a visit uh, to Providence, Rhode Island. We employ the studio that's being built in the lower level of my home for podcast production purposes to have a conversation in person. And we so configured the cameras that we can get some footage of you at the piano singing oh, uh, and playing. And we share that with our, with our audience. I think that would be just a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. Uh, to- the subscriber base goes down instantly. No, I guarantee <laughs> you that I will, I will help you we can do that. And the thing is, because of the sort of thing you and I do, you know, I'm used to being cameraed, you know, so I don't seize up. It would just be like doing it in that room for you. And so, yeah, you can do that. Sure. All right. My dream, my dream. We'll see we're going to work on it. My book, as we right. close out here, uh, Late Admissions, Confessions of a Black Conservative, forthcoming from Norton, uh, May 14, 2024, you can pre-order and I encourage you to do so. Check the links below or go to your favorite bookseller. I've uh, been with John McWhorter. We've been talking. Thanks a lot, John. See you in two weeks. Thank you, Glenn.